Well, good morning, church. I think it's been a while since I last preached to you. As many of you may know, our second daughter was uh, born earlier than we expected, and so I ended up taking some vacation time sooner than I had planned. I was actually scheduled to uh, preach this message a few weeks back uh, while we were in our previous sermon series, uh, but of course, circumstances prevented me from doing so, uh, but Fred and Henry graciously filled in for my absence And uh, since I already had the message prepared for that week, I just was looking forward to another chance to be able to preach it to you. And so um, I think this is a timely opportunity that at the end of a very long and hard year, we're going to draw our attention back to the God of diverse excellencies. So let me pray for us as we go into this message. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your providential timing of how this sermon was to be preached uh, weeks uh, earlier, and yet this is the moment that you want your church to hear your word coming out of Isaiah 53. And so I pray, Lord, that you will take your truth, you will impress it deeply upon our hearts, open up our eyes to be able to see Jesus for who he is, how he is revealed to us in this Old Testament text. We thank you. We pray all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You know, now that I have a newborn in the home, I have to accustom myself once again with those late-night feeds, with, the, with that Herculean task of trying to soothe a crying baby in the middle of the night, one who does not want to go back to sleep. You know, it's been almost 10 years since our last newborn, so admittedly I'm a bit rusty at this. I also feel totally inadequate to the task. You know, I don't think I'm, I'm too bad at, at swaddling, and I do have a few lullabies and hymns up my sleeve, so I have a few tricks uh, that I can use, but that's pretty much about it. I, like all fathers, lack the natural gifts of a nursing mother. We don't have the same equipment, if you know what I mean. So suffice it to say, I am a poor substitute for a nursing mother. Now, I bring up how ill-suited I am as a substitute, not to earn your sympathy, but to connect really to the larger point of our text. You see, this morning's passage is about the need that we have for a suitable substitute. Perhaps you've never thought about it this way, but Christianity is a religion of substitution. At the heart of the faith is the good news that we are saved from our sins by way of substitution, by someone doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. And if you just think about it, the theme of substitution, of salvation by way of substitution, is woven throughout the pages of Scripture. I mean, just in the very first book of the Bible, we see a ram substituted in the place of Isaac, Abraham's son, or how the Passover lamb was substituted for the firstborn sons of the Israelites, or how King David was, or or, or David before he was king, uh, uh, little David was substituted for the entire army of Israel fighting the Philistines in their place, or how in the temple system you have the blood of sheep being substituted in the place of worshipers. Well, by the time we get to the book of Isaiah, that substitutionary sheep is now identified more closely with a person. He's introduced to us in Isaiah as the servant of the Lord. 
Now, this mysterious figure first shows up in Isaiah chapter 42 in the first of what are known as the four servant songs of Isaiah. It's found in chapter 42, and then later in 49, chapter 50, and then here in our text, chapter 52, verse 13, to chapter 53, verse 12. So our text is the fourth song, and the theme centers on substitution. It prophesies that the servant of the Lord will one day come to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He'll sub in for us. He'll take our place. And this fourth song is trying to exalt the servant for his fitness as a suitable substitute to save us. You think about it. The Bible is scattered with failed substitutes who were ill-suited to save God's people. Moses and Joshua, no doubt they were strong leaders, but even they could not prevent the people from falling into disarray and disobedience. And then you have the judges and the kings of Israel who really could fare no better. And while the blood of bulls and goats and sheep were effective as substitutes to the extent of God's law, the constant repetition of these sacrifices signaled that they too were insufficient. They were all pointing to another. In fact, you could argue that the entire Old Testament is telling one big story that there is only one person out there who is suitable to save us by way of substitution. And that is the servant of the Lord. And we know him, of course, by his real name, Jesus Christ. So this morning, friends, I want to focus our hearts and our minds on Jesus, the servant which really does fit our previous sermon series, which we had called Behold the God of Diverse Excellencies. In that series, we were looking at passages that highlight the unique juxtaposition of seemingly opposite virtues found within the one person of Jesus Christ. He's both mighty and meek. He's a lion and a lamb. He's infinite God and finite man. He's a supreme sovereign and a foot-washing servant. He is all of those things in one. Well, today's text is about how an almighty Savior remains strangely silent in the face of suffering that he knows he does not deserve. And this, this diverse excellency in Christ is what makes him so unique and so suitable to save you and I by way of substitution. I'm going to tell you up front in today's message, the main application won't be for you to really do anything but to behold, to fix your attention on Christ and, and the full array of diverse excellencies found in him and to let all of that lead you to praise. Now, there are going to be five stanzas in this fourth servant song. And each of these stanzas are so rich, and they could really be a standalone sermon in themselves. And so there's no way we're going to be able to do a deep dive in each of the stanzas. Instead, what I'm going to do is to highlight a few uh, things from each of these stanzas and just call your attention to behold something unique about the servant. It'll be like taking five glances at a priceless jewel. And each time, we're going to come at it from a different angle in order to behold a different view of its diverse excellency. So come along with me in this passage 
and let's look at five different glances, five different views of the servant of the Lord. Our first glance in the first stanza starts us in chapter 52, verses 13 to 15. Let's behold he who embodies wisdom. That's how the servant is introduced to us. Starting in verse 13, it says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. So this song begins by exalting the servant for his wisdom. The wisdom of the Lord is going to be on full display in him. He will embody God's wisdom. But we learn in Scripture that God's wisdom is often misunderstood and, and easily overlooked because God's wisdom confounds human wisdom. In our eyes, his wisdom looks like foolishness. Keep reading in verse 14. It says, many were astonished at him, at this servant in whom God's wisdom is to be on display. Now, that doesn't mean astonished as in being impressed with him. No, it means astonished as in being horrified by him. Other translations say appalled. People took one look at his appearance and they were appalled. It says his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, human form, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Now, Isaiah doesn't elaborate on what ordeal this servant went through to have his appearance so mutilated to the extent that he's barely recognizable as a human anymore. But whatever the case, the outcome is that this highly exalted servant, this, this one who manifests God's wisdom in verse 13, is presented in the very next verse as appallingly mutilated and marred. That, my friends, is another example of this strange juxtaposition found in this one person, this juxtaposition that we're going to keep coming back to. And, and, and the paradoxical nature of this text just goes on in verse 15. It says, verse 15, So shall he, the servant, sprinkle many nations nations referring to the Gentiles, uh, the people uh, outside of God's people, Jewish people. Now, in the Old Testament, whenever you read about sprinkling, it's usually uh, blood or water or oil being used, and it's done in reference to ritual cleansing. So what you're doing by sprinkling this person or this object is that you are making them clean fit to be used in service for the Lord or, or to, to be fit to be in his presence. So by sprinkling many nations, the servant is doing priestly work. He is cleansing the Gentiles. He is making them fit to be brought before the Lord. But notice the irony. Notice how he whom the nations regard as unclean is the one who is going to be cleansing the nations. The one that we regard as appalling and disgusting will be the very one to make us clean and beautiful in the eyes of God. That confounds human wisdom. I mean, just think about it. If, if I was going to wipe down the, uh, my counter to make it clean, I wouldn't use a rag that I considered appalling. That, that would make no sense. But that's the kind of wisdom on display in the person and work of the servant of the Lord. And it only begins to make any sense 
when we keep on reading the scriptures and to see where this servant of the Lord shows up again. And if we keep reading the Bible on into the Gospels, we find Jesus taking on the very role of this servant tasked with a job that led him to Calvary. And there he was high and lifted up on a cross. He had been beaten and scourged to an inch of his life. We're told that he was marred and mutilated beyond human form. He was appalling to look at. And yet on the cross, the servant of the Lord was making us clean and beautiful in the eyes of God, sprinkling the nations by the blood of his cross. Friends, human wisdom could not fathom this. The irony of the cross, the paradox of the gospel, is actually a strong apologetic for its veracity. In other words, we could not have made this up. We could not have imagined that a suitable substitute who makes us clean and holy would be at the very same time someone that we would, be, we would consider unclean and appalling. But that is the wisdom of God. It confounds human wisdom and it keeps us humble. Who are we to question God's wisdom? Who are we to question his design? Who are we to think that we are too unclean, too sinful to be saved? Oh, friends, for those of you who feel dirty because of your sins, behold this servant. Behold the one who sprinkles you and cleanses you by his own blood. Friends, that's our first glance at the servant of the Lord from the first stanza. Now let's look at the second stanza, which is found in chapter 53, verses 1 to 3. And here we're going to, Behold, he who bears the strong arm of the Lord. The song points to the servant as the one who will manifest the saving power of God in himself. And yet, at the same time, the song also acknowledges just how unbelievable this message is going to be. Listen to verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The song is rhetorically asking, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? In other words, who is able to recognize the saving power of God? Who is able to identify the strong arm of the Lord? The point is that God's saving power will be revealed in the person and work of the servant. But, but who's going to believe that? No one is going to believe this message. And why is it so hard to believe? Well, that's because the servant, when he finally does arrive on the scene, will come across as ordinary, unattractive even. You would think that a mighty Savior, one who bears the strong arm of the Lord, would be handsome and dashing. King Saul was described in 1 Samuel chapter 9 as a handsome young man. Not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. And, and later on in 1 Samuel chapter 16, young David was portrayed as handsome in, in appearance with beautiful eyes. So God's people were far more accustomed to following attractive leaders 
Those who are easy on the eyes and who won you over with their natural charm and charisma. But listen now to how the servant is being described. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. The more he will be despised and rejected, the more unbelievable it will be that this servant of the Lord could actually be the manifestation of God's saving power, that he could actually bear the strong and mighty arm of God Almighty. That's why the Apostle Paul describes the message of Christianity as foolishness to the unbelieving world. The message of Christ crucified, it's a stumbling block to Jews, and it's folly to Gentiles, because, again, it flies in the face of conventional wisdom. That's why when when Jesus does finally arrive on the scene, so many rejected him because he appeared to have such an ordinary background. He was the son of a local carpenter. He was poor and penniless. Foxes have holes. Birds uh, Birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. And Jesus would frequent the homes of of the most despised people in society, giving cause for the religious to despise and to reject him even more. They esteemed him not. And I wonder, though, if we were living in those days, would we have recognized Jesus for who he really is? Would we have esteemed him as the earthly embodiment of the saving power of God? You know, you know I, I think if we're being honest, we, we probably would have overlooked him ourselves because we tend to assume that power is found in those who are impressive physical specimens. Just think of all those superheroes that we love. Their alter egos might be, might be ordinary and unassuming, but when the superhero is finally revealed, there's no questioning their might, their power. So, you know, Clark Kent might be some unimpressive reporter, but Superman is going to blow you away. And so we accept that, yeah, Jesus, he lived in obscurity for those first 30 years of his life. That was his alter ego. But when he finally begins his public ministry, the assumption is that he's going to blow everyone away and that there's going to, he's going to leave no doubt in their minds that he is the Son of God. And it's not to say that he didn't draw a crowd during those three years of his public ministry. But you have to remember, he still ended up on a cross. In the end, the crowds esteemed him not. And let's not get too high on ourselves and, and to assume that we would have acted any different if we were there. If we were looking for a suitable substitute to represent us before the high king of heaven, I don't think we would have chosen a man who was rejected as a criminal who was despised as an insurrectionist, hanging, cursed on a Roman cross. But that, my friends, is the irony. That's the paradox of the gospel. He is the one who bears the strong arm of the Lord.
So friends, we've taken these two different glances at the servant of the Lord. Now let's turn to our third stanza in chapter 53, verses 4 to 6. And let's look at things from a different angle. Here we'll see, here we, we will behold he who secures peace with God. Scripture says that human sinfulness has put, a, put us at odds with God. Every one of us is born not as beloved children of God, but as his bitter enemies. We childishly reject his good authority over us, and he rightly condemns us in his holy anger. And so our greatest need in the world right now, if we were to ask, what is the greatest need? Yeah, I know a lot of us are thinking it's for this pandemic to end. It's for this vaccine to be more widely distributed. Yes, that, that, that is a very urgent need. But what is the greatest need for us in the world right now? It's to secure peace with God, to placate his righteous wrath. We all desperately need to be at peace with God Almighty. And peace is what the servant came to bring. But ironically, many would look at him and assume that he's the one at odds with God, that he's the one who needs peace with the Lord. Look at verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. We esteem him not as the embodiment of God's saving power, but as one who is smitten or stricken, smitten, afflicted by God. We saw the servant's sufferings and we just assumed he deserved it. God must have been punishing him for something that he did. But how can someone smitten by God secure peace for us when it appears that he's not at peace himself? It doesn't make any sense. That is until we get to the cross. And then we see the paradoxical wonder of the cross. Because on the cross, Jesus, Jesus truly was afflicted by God as someone who deserved it. Like, remember, God was not punishing an innocent person on the cross. Had he done so, that would have been unjust. And God is never unjust. So on the cross, God was punishing a sinner. Martin Luther puts it this way. Jesus Christ was the greatest sinner that ever lived. Now, I know Luther likes to speak in hyperbole. He often makes some outlandish statements, but I really think he meant this one. Because what he meant was that on the cross, Christ was the greatest sinner that ever lived because on the cross, he bore the sins of a countless many. He had no sins of his own. That's clear. Verse 9 says, he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Verse 11 calls him the righteous one. So he had, he had no sins of his own, but sins were laid on him. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Look at verse 5 and notice exactly whose sins the servant has identified with. Verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. So think about that. 
this picture, all the sins, all the transgressions, all the iniquities that you have ever committed in your life up to this point, all written down on record. How big of a volume would that be? Can you imagine just how heavy that book would be? And it's not even finished yet. For you, there are likely countless chapters of sins yet to be recorded in that book. Now, picture, picture now Jesus carrying that heavy volume for you. And not just for you, not just your book, Picture him weighed down and crushed by the weight of an untold number of books of sinners across the generations of those who put their trust in him. These countless volumes of sins being laid upon him one by one over and over again. Imagine him under the crushing weight of all of those books. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In that sense, Jesus was the greatest sinner who ever lived because he was the greatest and only suitable substitute to take all of our sins upon himself, to be chastised and punished by God, to reconcile us to God, to bring us peace with God. Every one of us who feels the heavy weight of sin, the heavy weight of our own sins, should be relieved that the servant of the Lord has carried them for us on the cross. Friends, I want to ask you, are you still carrying your own sins? Are you still carrying that heavy volume of sins and iniquities in your own hands? Do you you really want to take the risk of standing before the holy God to give an account for all that is in that book? You'll be crushed by his holy wrath. If, friends, if, if you have never asked Jesus to step in for you, if you have never asked Jesus to be your suitable substitute to hold that book for you, to take the weight of your sins off of your chest and to put, bear them for you on his cross, then my friend, today is the day to do that. Turn to Jesus. Call out to Jesus for rescue. Ask him to be your substitute, to take that book off of your hands. And he will do it, and you will be saved. Now, friends, this third stanza, I think, flows pretty seamlessly into the fourth. And the fourth glance we're going to get of this servant reveals a very related image. Behold, he who silently suffers for us. I know that's hard to comprehend, to silently suffer for someone else. Because the instant we're accused of something that we didn't do, we cry foul. I mean, we just complain that, that things are unfair. We are quick to defend ourselves. And yet in this fourth stanza, in verses 7 to 9, the servant of the Lord silently receives the punishment that we incurred. And he did it without a retort. He, he did it without mounting a defense. Look at verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. 
yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that, it, that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Now, in verse 6, we were just compared to sheep, which is no compliment at all when you consider the stubbornness and the foolishness that's common to sheep. But now here in verse 7, the servant of the Lord identifies with us. He identifies with God's people, and he's also compared to sheep. But in his case, the sheep-like quality in view is their meekness. You see, sheep have no natural defenses. When they're caught by prey, they, they just resign themselves to their fate. So the point being made here is that when the servant was asked by the Lord to substitute himself in the place of sinners, to bear their afflictions, he didn't put up a fight. He didn't argue. He didn't complain about that being unfair. No, he humbly accepted the task. He allowed himself to be poorly treated like a lamb led to the slaughter. He opened not his mouth through his excruciating ordeal. He silently suffered. Recall how in the Gospels, Pontius Pilate was completely caught off guard by Jesus' silence. As the chief priests and the elders rolled out their list of accusations against them, it says that he gave no answer, not even to a single charge. And we're told that that made Pilate greatly amazed. Because he was used to accused persons arguing all the time and complaining, trying to justify themselves, trying to excuse their behavior, claiming, of course, to be innocent victims. But ironically, the only man who could truly claim to be an innocent victim stood there silently and he took the abuse. More than that, he willingly took our sins upon his shoulders and was accounted accursed for us. Look at verse 8. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. So his generation, his peers, considered him accursed, cut off, because he died a shameful death on a wooden cross. And as Scripture says, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. But the way that Jesus' body was handled after his death with a mixture of shame and honor highlights for us once again the paradoxical nature of the man. Keep reading in verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So the circumstances surrounding Jesus' death really prove that he is the fulfillment of Isaiah's suffering servant. Just think about how he was put to death along with the wicked. Because in the Roman era, crucifixion was reserved for the worst of the worst. Like insurrectionists, guys who call themselves a king and raise up a following. His death was purposely dishonorable and shameful. And yet, and yet he ends up being honored by being buried in a rich man's tomb. We're told that Joseph of Arimathea, who was a wealthy member of the Jewish high council, who, who disagreed with these actions against Jesus, he had received permission to take down Jesus's body and to bury him in his empty tomb. So Christ, yes, he was dishonored in his death, and yet he was honored in his burial. 
And that just illustrates this strange mixture of, of shame and honor to be found in the person and work of Christ. But just think about what this demonstrates. Think about what it says about how Jesus feels about you. Who else, who else in the world would be willing to subject, to subject themselves to such shame and humiliation for the sake of another and to do it without complaint, to do it without a word being spoken? We would scarcely do that for another, though perhaps for a family member or a close friend, we would dare to consider it, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And he died for us as silent as a lamb. Just think about what that demonstrates. Think about how much it tells you that he loves you. Now, friends, we've taken four good glances at the suffering servant. Let's just finish it off with a fifth and final glance through our fifth stanza found in verses 10 to 12. Here we will behold he who shall be satisfied. Now, you're supposed to be surprised by that, that this servant would be satisfied in the end. Because we saw how he's going to be pierced and crushed, oppressed, afflicted, led to the slaughter, and yet somehow he's going to be satisfied? How do we make sense of all that? Well, let's read in verses 10 to 11. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. So this fifth stanza begins by affirming that what will happen to the servant is, that, that what's going to happen to him is not some kind of arbitrary set of unforeseen circumstances. No, this is the will of the Lord. The will of the Lord is to crush him, to put him to grief, to set him forth as a guilt offering. Now, according to the law of Moses, guilt offerings were burned by fire, and then whatever was left over was consumed by the Levitical priests in the temple. And so that was it. There was nothing left over. And yet, with the servant, after it says he's going to be offered up as a guilt offering, he still remains. He's still around to see his offspring, to prolong his days. He will prosper in the work of his hands. Out of the anguish of his soul, it says, he shall see and be satisfied. How is that possible if he's a guilt offering? How can the servant be offered as a guilt offering, which is typically fully consumed, and yet still survive to see his offspring and be satisfied? Well, friends, that mystery can only be unraveled and explained by the resurrection that follows the cross. Hebrews 12 says that it was for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross. That meant that he knew that even though the path to Calvary would cost him everything, he would be satisfied in the end. 
because he knew that he would be delivered up for our trespasses and yet raised up for our justification. Look back at what it says in verse 11. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, Jesus, the servant, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. So Jesus was satisfied in the end, knowing that he would see the fruit of his labor, that he would see a countless many saved from our iniquities, accounted righteous in the eyes of God, justified in God's sight. That was the joyous outcome that was set before Jesus. That is what allowed him to endure the sufferings of the cross. Now notice how this servant song, which began with so much sorrow and suffering for the servant, notice how it ends really on a high note of victory. After going through all that suffering, after serving as our suitable substitute, he will return to the Lord and he will receive a victor's spoil. Look at verse 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. transgressors. He, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So by the end of this servant song, we're beholding how the servant's weakness will be turned to strength, how his dishonor will lead to honor, how his defeat will result finally in victory. This, my friends, once again, is that amazing juxtaposition of seeming opposites that is all found in the one person and work of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Church, this vision of Christ is exactly what we need to behold as we have arrived on the last Sunday of a very long and difficult year. We need to set our eyes on the satisfied Savior. I know that many of us are ending 2020 still feeling very anxious, very troubled by the circumstances, by this pandemic and all the effects we, we don't know when it's going to end. We don't know what life is going to look like on the other side. But of this, we can be sure. Our souls can be satisfied when we look to Jesus, our suitable substitute and satisfied Savior. Keep your eyes fixed on him, my friends. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you for this word. Thank you for this timely message coming out of the book of Isaiah, giving us a bigger vision, a clearer view of your son, Jesus, of who he is as the suffering servant, the one who comes to take our place as a suitable substitute. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. It leads us to give you all the praise, all the glory for everything that is good in our lives. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.